This episode of the Pillar Podcast is brought to you by the Christendom at Project, an exciting initiative from Christendom College Graduate School of Theology to bring faithful, rigorous Catholic studies electives to undergraduates at secular universities. Find out in our show notes how you can earn academic credit towards your degree while learning how to defend and share your faith. Spring registration is now open. Hey everybody, welcome to the Pillar Podcast, the podcast that brings you great Catholic conversation each week. I'm your host and Pillar Editor-in-Chief, J.D. Flynn, and I am joined by my podcasting partner and Pillar co-founder, Ed Condon, who is coming to us from his office, actually. Ed, um, how is how are things in your office this, this morning? Well, it's a little cold in my office, I'm not going to lie. Um, you know, I've got, I've got uh, cold hands. Uh, have you got a space heater? I don't have a space heater. I have a weird house. I mean, it's not my house. I rent a weird house. You live in a weird house. I live in a weird house in that I don't know where the thermostat is at. I mean, I know where the thermostat is, but I don't when you know that you know how your thermostat displays the temperature in your house. I know how the thermostat displays the temperature. I in my don't house. know where that temperature that. reading is being taken oh, from. Oh yes, of course. I, this is a big problem. Because yes. you know, and, and it's all the rooms are are small and easily heated or cooled, at least on the ground floor and. That's all fine and dandy, but you know, if you turn the heat up just a little bit, the baby's room turns into a sauna. But mm-hmm. nothing ever seems to warm up my office, and I, I just don't understand. So I'm a little cold. Uh, JD's. Well, I'm sorry to hear that. I, I have the same. Uh, what I think happens in my house is that the the temperature gauge for the thermostat is downstairs, and it's decidedly colder upstairs. Now you would think I would have thought at least warm air rises. that it'd be colder upstairs because warm air rises. But I think there must be some gaps in my house, or I I don't know. I I don't know what the problem is, but it's decidedly colder upstairs often, and so maybe my maybe my ducks need to be, I don't know what it is, but it's decidedly colder upstairs. And so at night, you know, I've got to turn the heat up to make it kind of warmer upstairs and things like that. And then. My room, Mrs. Flynn and I's room, the room of Mrs. Flynn and I, I, I really have never understood how to make a double possession. Um, the room occupied by Mrs. Flynn and I is the coldest room in the house by a long shot. Mm. And so we've got uh, numerous, numerous blankets, but I just, uh, I don't know why, why that is. So I, I feel your pain as well. I'm, I'm a total, to I mean, when I, when I was living in the UK, um, the HVAC does not exist over there. And as a result, the quality of life for most people is much higher because, you know, you're, your head isn't constantly dried out by the presence of forced air and things like that. And it, it, I mean, I am, I'm an unapologetic radiator trad. Like I don't, I do not understand why we have to have this ridiculous, you know, turbine outside the house that you know, pumps dry air that destroys your sinuses and everything. Just, just give like, I, I just, we, we invented the perfect thing. Like we, you give a cast iron radiator full of hot water and it heats the whole room. And mm-hmm, it's, it, mm-hmm. I do I, like a cast iron radiator. But like, why have we, why? Well, do you not, um, do you not, and I realize that I'm walking into sticky moral territory here, but do you not um, appreciate the value of forced air, air conditioning in the summertime? And I realize, I realize I'm walking into sticky moral territory there. Well, I mean, you are required um, by Laudato Si. To, to make a religious submission of intellect and will on the on the moral turpitude of air conditioning, I I myself can take it or leave it. I I don't really care that much about. I mean, is it nice to have the house a little cooler in the summer? I guess, but I can live without it. I didn't grow up with forced air and stuff when I was a small kid in Chicago. You just open the windows. You got you put the screens up and you open the windows, and you know if you're hot, you're hot. You know, drink drink colder beer. Yeah, no, I totally appreciate it. I I grew up not only have not having air conditioning, um, but grew I 
for some reason, I uh, I don't know why we're talking about this, but for some reason, I because people love the banter, JD. Well, this is a spontaneous conversation. It is a spontaneous conversation. There was no plan for this conversation, obviously. Um, but uh, not only did I grow up without air conditioning, but I grew up with the idea that air conditioning was somehow morally, actually, much like Pope Francis, somehow a sign of moral deficiency. Not I didn't appreciate its contribution to global warming, which wasn't a thing that we talked about then or maybe knew about. I don't know. Um, but not in that sense, but in the sense just that I, I had a very sort of stoic sense of one's relation to one one's own comfort and i felt that it would be uh wrong for one to make such concerted efforts to comfort oneself with a uh, with with treated air cooled air that that, that sounds a very american american evangelical protestant mentality yeah me, you know so. i you know uh, there's a kind did of you, did you did you kind of sneakily think air conditioning's catholic no, I never thought about Catholics. Because that would be really funny if that was the reverse. I just thought it was secular, very honestly. I just thought air ah. conditioning was secular. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So that's yeah. yeah. Okay. The we- cool breeze of Satan blowing through your house. <laughs> Wasn't that I, I didn't think it was demonic. I, I didn't think it was demonic, to be clear. I just thought it was secular. Are you comfortable? That's how the devil likes it, you <laughs> filthy brute. <laughs> Okay, uh, we have a lot to talk about, and what I want to start out by talking about, if it's all right with you, is this: is certain elements of the state of the American Episcopate. Uh, and here's what I mean: um, there was a significant birthday in the state of the American Episcopate this week, uh, because Cardinal Wilton Gregory, the Archbishop of Washington, turned seventy-five years old this week. The age at which bishops customarily are requested to send a letter of resignation to the Roman pontiff in accord with the law. And so Cardinal Gregory presumably sent a letter of resignation to the Roman pontiff, um, and he will presumably be um, uh, remaining in office for a couple more years, as is the custom for cardinals, at least in these United States. Um, But I have been thinking about two things related to um, the birthday of Cardinal Gregory. One is the... the Could we not refer to it as the nativity of Cardinal Gregory, please, given the season? You would like me to refer to it as the nativity of Cardinal Gregory. Yeah, I just think that it's, would be your it's more elegant. Yeah. Um, I have been <laughs> thinking about two things in relation to the nativity of Cardinal Gregory. The first it has to do with a sort of, uh, it seemed to me that even while he will remain a little while in ministry. It's it's not a bad time, I think, to have a little bit of a conversation about some elements of his own sort of a record or tenure in the Archdiocese of Washington. And then I thought it might be interesting to have a conversation about the situation of American bishops vis-a-vis their age and the situation of American cardinals vis-a-vis their age and kind of what that, some of that means. So, um, uh, I realize that's not the conversation that we just literally just talked about happening before yes, having before minutes we, ago when we said, what are we going to talk about on the show? We outlined a two topic show and neither of those topics was this one. But yeah, by all means, let, let's talk about whatever you want to talk well, about. JD. But this is something that you and I had a good, I think, telephone conversation about earlier this week. Did we not? I don't. Th- this is going to be great because I don't actually remember that. I mean, we probably do. We, we had a conversation about Cardinal Gregory. Eight or nine Gregory. times a day. Yeah, we did have a conversation about Cardinal Gregory um, turning 75. And uh, we were just reflecting on the way in which he approached his ministry and some of the expectations for his ministry when he was appointed Archbishop of Washington. Mm-hmm. So he was appointed Archbishop of Washington actually not too long ago, right? In 2019. Is that right? That is, I believe, correct. And um, when he was appointed Archbishop of Washington, he came to Washington while the archdiocese was under scandal. Um, he came to he came to Washington, you know, just um, 
less than a year after the uh, you know the the emergence of the scandal of Theodore McCarrick, after the resignation of Cardinal Whirl, who was believed to have it would be had, fair to say left under something of a cloud, left under something of a cloud with regard to having um, had at various points various kinds of knowledge about McCarrick and not having really um, and seeming not to have really acted on that kind of knowledge or oh no 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 I'm going to stop you right there no. No, the reason Cardinal Whirl left office under a cloud is, and I remember because we followed this in minute detail. I, I, I remember too. Many, but, if not most okay. of the stories, that yes, Cardinal Whirl appeared to have uh, information and in some cases allegations regarding Theodore McCarrick at different times in his Episcopal career, going back to his time as Bishop of Pittsburgh, even if I'm not mistaken. Um, but there was no suggestion that he failed to act. On the contrary, as I recall, everything seemed to suggest that he did everything that the church's policies, laws, and procedures expected and required of him. And in some cases, he went almost above and beyond them, it seemed, to bring things to the attention of ecclesiastical authorities on one occasion, getting in his car and driving from Pittsburgh to That's D.C. Right. to mm-hmm. put a file in the hands of the nuncio. Um, so, no, it wasn't that. It was that Cardinal Whirl, after the scandal around McCarrick broke in June of 2018, insisted on looking the camera and various journalists and other individuals in the eyes and denying he ever knew anything. So it wasn't that he failed to do something with the information he had at the time. It was that he insisted he never had the information to begin yeah, with. Yeah, that's right. I think that's a fair summary. And what was really happening there is that Whirl was effectively wanting to and, – and we talked about this at the time, I think, a lot. And what what really happened – I didn't summarize it well. I apologize for that. But what really happened there was that Whirl – it's not that even Whirl was attempting to protect McCarrick so much nope. as that Whirl um, – Truly and thoroughly a man of the institution, I think, seemed to be aiming to protect the institution from any implication that it hadn't um, that it hadn't acted appropriately by effectively allowing a lot of the blame to fall on himself in a way that in certain ways wasn't even uh, authentic and then seemed to be caught with that, right? So Whirl said, I never yes. knew about this. I never knew about any of this. But in fact, he knew about it and he did not want it to seem as if he had manifested to the Holy See or to the Apostolic Nuncio various concerns about McCarrick. And that, that that nothing had been done. I mean, world did not want it to seem as though, um, as though the Holy See had been in some ways negligent with McCarrick and was therefore um, dishonest about what he himself had known. That is correct. Yeah. I, I think it's absolutely fair to say that Cardinal World was acutely conscious that admitting to what he knew about McCarrick when and what he did about it was problematic, not for him because he did everything right. It seemed, uh, but it would make it problematic for the Holy See because they did nothing. As a result, and and that was the reason why I believe, and that's this is conjecture on my part, uh, that I believe is why Cardinal Whirl denied that he had all of this information at the times that he had it, uh, which he denied, denied which denied. allowed he yeah. denied, in fact, that he had denied knowing that, which allowed, in fact, for us in January of 2019 to create the greatest headline that I believe we have ever created while working with another true. news outlet. Whirl denies prior denials, denied knowledge of McCarrick seminarian abuse, right? Because Whirl. <laughs> Denied all of those things. Denied having denied that he had known about McCarrick's abuse when he when it became clear that Whirl had actually known about it and had actually brought it to the Holy See and attempted to address exactly. it. Exactly. I apologize for taking us down this call. No, I'm very glad that you did. I think that that's totally clear. fair. I'm very glad that you did because what we want to talk about right now is what happened since and what has happened in the tenure of Wilton Cardinal Gregory. Gregory came in under these circumstances. Whirl had denied prior denials, denied knowledge of McCarrick and all of that. Whirl had, been, did, had not been forthcoming. Um, and in fact, had had said things which were true, w- w- seemed to have said things which were untrue, 
and then denied having said those things were untrue and um, seemed um, seemed in many ways to obstruct or obscure using uh, omission when necessary um, or even commission in some cases. And so there was a great deal of upset and discontent um, at the end of the tenure of Cardinal Whirl about how he was handling the emerging scandal of Theodore McCarrick and especially the sense that he was aiming to protect the institution. Under those circumstances, Cardinal Gregory was appointed to become the Archbishop of Washington. Uh, he was installed, I think, in, I want to say, March of 2019 or something along those lines. And um, when, he, when Cardinal Gregory was appointed the Archbishop of Washington, all of, he, he did a press conference, a long press conference, in which he said that um, you know, he understood that he was coming into a diocese that was in a great deal of pain. He understood that he was coming into a diocese in which there was a great deal of mistrust. He understood the hurt that had um, been experienced in the Archdiocese of Washington. It was a and, very good press conference, he, and he did it with Cardinal Whirl sitting there next to him. Uh, because it was before his installation, this was in yeah, February. Yeah, was at the, I think. the announcement of his appointment, which I think was in yeah. February of two thousand, uh, excuse me, April of two thousand nineteen, and he was then installed in, in May. And he he um, he he basically said, with Whirl in the room, "Hey, there's a new sheriff in town, and I know you guys are hurting because of the way all this has been handled." Wink, wink. There's my predecessor, and we're going to do things differently. And then what did he say that's, that's so memorable from that conference, press conference? The old way of circling the wagons is not the way. That's and right. We are not going to do that. And he built towards what you were leading us towards uh, very well, was uh, which he said, I will always tell you the truth. That's right. He said, I will always tell you the truth. Actually, the reason he said, I will always tell you the truth was because of a question asked by our now friend and formerly colleague, um, Christine Roussel, who asked a question. I can't quite remember what the question was, but Christine had asked a question about whether the diocese would be forthcoming about X, Y, or Z. And that's when Merle said, um, I will always tell you the truth. Is that right? Yes, I, I just yes. wanted to sort of give Christine the credit due it was, there. It was an insightful and penetrating um, question. I'm sure. And what Gregory said in response was, I will always tell you the truth. What I'm wondering about, Ed, is as we look back over the past couple of years, Gregory now tends to be evaluated um, in, in his ministry in the Archdiocese of Washington in terms of other things. His role in the Eucharistic coherence debate um, you know, in which the, let, the, the the sort of famous letter sent to Archbishop Gomez asking that the Eucharistic coherence debate be taken off the agenda, the meeting agenda, was done on his letterhead and and um, and largely through his organization. Um, his engagement with with politicians in the Archdiocese of Washington, his you know kind of consistent affirmation that he would not consider the prospect of denying Holy Communion to pro-abortion Catholic politicians in, in the Archdiocese of Washington and that being juxtaposed with the decisions of Archbishop Cordelioni and others. Um, his Now uh, many people think about him in terms of his implementation of Traditionis Custodes. There's often conversation about how Cardinal Gregory sort of handled Traditionis Custodes and some of the discontent that that's led to and the, the prospect that that might even lead indeed to the to the closure of some parishes. But what I wonder about is just talking about Gregory, not in terms of those more sort of theological issues, but in terms of this commitment to, I will always tell you the truth. Because as I think about it, I think that Gregory has had an interesting way of engaging with that over the three years of his ministry in the Archdiocese of Washington. Gregory has not, to our knowledge, been dishonest with regard to questions about McCarrick or McCarrick's 
role in the Archdiocese of Washington or McCarrick's money, there's this major question looming, which the Archdiocese of Washington can answer, about sort of this large, unmonitored, largely unmonitored fund from which McCarrick drew checks, presumably to make a living, but also to give gifts to people all around the world, and what the ledgers of those accounts might tell us about bishops who might have known and protected McCarrick. Um, there are, and, and where the money came from. where the money the came place. from and where it went and, and those kinds of things. Um, Gregory has not, in my observation, been dishonest in response to questions about that. Um, he has instead adopted a very different tack with regard to um, questions about the life of the church in the Archdiocese of Washington, including questions about McCarrick, but on any number of other subjects as well. And Ed, what is that tack? Uh, it's not to answer questions. Right. Gregory's commitment was, I will always tell you the truth. And, and in, sort of in the lens of the negative, um, has Gregory told not the truth, um, one can say no. He has not told untruths. He has not told untruths. In as much as we can tell, Gregory has not spent the last couple of years of his ministry telling untruths. But it might have been different if at his press conference he had said, I will not tell untruths. Because the question of has Gregory always told the truth is a different one, isn't it? Well, I mean, if you want, yes, it is. But I mean, you, I want to be fair to the cardinal. He has not told you untruths. Be fair to the, and I think that's, that, that, yeah. yes, that's okay. All right. All right. But you, you can't expect him to stand in a press conference and say, effectively, I won't lie to you, because that would have been extremely undiplomatic with Boyle <laughs> sitting next to him. Because to say, I will always tell you the truth, was a, a, a gentle and positively phrased affirmation that Whirl had not necessarily always told the truth. But to stand up there and just say, well, I won't lie to you. That's how I'm going to rebuild trust. That was the question, by the way, was how what steps can you take immediately to rebuild trust with the faithful of Washington, which you know, suffered under um, the, the appearance of Mm-hmm. Uh, a, a lack of veracity mm-hmm. in some of um, their dealings with their own shepherds. And and he said, I will always tell the truth. You can't say, well, I won't lie to you because that would have been as good as saying, and unlike my colleague here, and and so that was never going to happen. But I think it's important, J.D., and you're not wrong that Cardinal Gregory's, and indeed the Archdiocese of Washington as an institution under Cardinal Gregory has adopted a position of, I think it would be, say, friendly non-engagement. Right. With, so that's what I wanted to get at. He hasn't told untruths insofar as we can tell. But his what has been, um, in our experience, and the experience of many other journalists, actually, and the experience of many other Catholics over the last three years, is precisely what you say, friendly non-engagement. The Cardinal's sort of operative principle, it seems, has been simply not to answer questions, not only from sort of um, you know annoying Catholic media like us who are constantly sort of you know, nebbing about about, accounts, about the McCarrick, about the McCarrick fund. Archbishop accounts and things like that, um, but um, but uh, with with me, with media sort of across the spectrum, with the Washington Post, with the New York Times, with any number of Catholic media, the Cardinal's approach has been, by and large, sort of we don't answer questions. Is that is that right? Well, yeah. I mean, there was actually an incident where um, a staffer in the communications office accidentally hit reply rather than forward on an email. <laughs> and sent to a journalist what was intended for the head of communications the Archdiocese saying basically we've been having these inquiries from journalists all day I'll continue to ignore them as as, as our policy is effectively so it's I mean it does seem like there has been a an actual policy in the Archdiocese of Washington's communications office not to communicate with press which is you know it's frustrating, it can um, be frustrating. but may I may I offer uh, a, an alternative perspective or at least uh, can I turn can I turn the prism of our subject? I'd be grateful for it because I want to talk about the sort of broader implications of this policy of non-engagement and the way in which it has become a, a, a predominant sort of cultural motif in the life of the church in response to the McCarrick scandals. But I'd love to hear your alternative perspective as first. Okay. Um, and it is this. Cardinal Gregory was brought in 
to the Archdiocese of Washington, as you say, at a, at a time of um, feelings were running high in the Archdiocese. Yes. I, I live in the Archdiocese. It was a, it was a fraught moment, wasn't time. it? It was. It was a, it was a time fraught with uh, all, all sorts of tensions between the people and their and their shepherds. Uh, th- their emotions it, were fraught. Their experiences were fraught. No, their emotions were running high. Emotions aren't fraught. That's silly. You're just being silly now. Um, but I remember it well, and there was there was a great desire um, for for some something to happen to show that the the outrage and concern of local Catholics who were deeply scandalized by the whole McCarrick situation had been heard, and I think. I mean, what I understood at the time, and it's still my understanding now, is that Cardinal Gregory took the job of Archbishop of Washington somewhat reluctantly. Yeah, I think that's right. He was, you know, he's, we're talking about this in the context of his 75th birthday, which was this week. So he was 72 and, and he had a pretty good gig. He was Archbishop of Atlanta and things were going very well. Things were going well. He was well regarded and well liked there. The and mansion also scandal was, was in his. Do you remember the mansion scandal of the Archdiocese? I not only do I remember the mansion. I was asked about this at the time. I in one of back in the days when I still sullied myself by doing spots on television news. I, I was asked about this, you know, by a by a secular um, TV journalist. I, sometimes I think that's oxymoronic, but that's neither here nor there. Um, about about the 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 sort of. Cardinal Gregory's, then Archbishop Gregory's terror moment, um, in which the the archdiocese had been left a legacy by the nephew of the woman who wrote Gone with the Wind, mm-hmm. and a sizable proportion had gone on building a residence for the archbishop, which was rather palatial, um, but had, you know, they, they'd advanced the, I thought, coherent defense um, that this was basically an event space primarily, and there was an apartment for the archbishop upstairs. But you know, this was basically where the archdiocese was going to host all its fundraising events and receptions of various kinds. And you know, the, that it was a working building; it wasn't that the cardinal was building himself, you know, a, a giant place with you know an underground pool and you know, not nonsense like that. And I remember being asked about this at the time, and it, it, I think it was intended as a sort of you know, well, this is how we can you know put the boot in on the new guy as he comes in the door, and you know, make him start under the gun. And, my response at the time, and I, I think it holds true, is, you know, oh, for the days when, you know, the worst thing that could be said about an archbishop was that he had a nice house. He had a nice house, that's right. You right. know, that that we'd, we'd rather moved past that in a bad way by that But by 2019, that was well behind Gregory, because that was in 2014. So so even that was it well was. behind him by the time he was considering taking Washington, which indeed he did do yeah. reluctantly, yes. And he did do reluctantly, because it's my understanding that he, you know, he, he thought he was, he'd been pretty long in the field at that point, and he was looking forward to retirement, as I understood it. You know, he was he was thinking, you know, I've, I've, I've led a pretty full pastoral life. I'm going to turn 75, and, and that's going to be nice. Mm-hmm. And instead, he, you know, he found himself thrust into a very high-profile situation and very much has to walk into a burning building, put the flames out, and try and rebuild it. And I think Cardinal Gregory has, as you say, a- adopted a policy of, well, I won't. I won't tell untruths, but I'm not going to talk about this sort of stuff either. And he has tried instead to be, I think, and I think this is a fair characterization, I think he sought to be an archbishop with a much more low profile mm-hmm. than, than many of his predecessors as Cardinal Archbishop of Washington. Yeah, he's had the, he had a, a role in the, um, in the Eucharistic coherence debate last year. And that was largely a result of he couldn't stay out of it because he's the Archbishop of Washington. But the sense that I got was he really didn't want to be a part of that conversation. It wasn't that he was crusading on one side or another. 
Um, it was that he really, he, he didn't appreciate people. He's not, I mean, Cardinal Worrell was well known to be sort of, you know, up and around on Capitol Hill and in and out of the White House and, you know, considered himself to be a, a force on the D.C., chessboard yeah and in fact there there was frustration at various times there was frustration during the tenure of cardinal Whirl among for example um figures in the u.s conference of catholic bishops who felt that at times Whirl had become a kind of um had positioned himself to become a kind of uh, a- alternative um uh, figure for dialogue or conversation with federal authorities where the conference you know where that had is generally perceived to be the purview of the conference. There was some of his frustration that Worrell sort of looped himself into, you know, kind of USCCB lobbying or protocol or diplomatic conversations with the federal government in a way that the conference couldn't predict. And so that that was uh, could become a source of frustration. That That is not, I don't think, it's not at least what I'm hearing that that's what Gregory is doing in, in the same way. Not at all. Yeah. I, although I do hear almost every weekend about Cardinal Gregory popping up in one parish or another across the archdiocese, right. visiting with people. You know, he's he's a guy who's much more likely to be found at a Friday fish fry than you know the, in the, the White House of the West Wing or something like that. Yeah, yeah. He's that. That's the role he's created for himself, and I think it has. But he's been broadly successful in that, in as much as it has successfully shifted the tone of conversation around the archdiocese of Washington. You know, you don't speak of Cardinal Gregory and, you, and and speak of scandal. You know, it's that's not what he does. He's a no drama kind of guy. Well, I mean, and even the kinds of things that there's frustration about are ecclesi are 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 non mechanic ecclesial things or sort of political things, right? So, what's I'll be Gregory honest with gonna- you, the biggest complaints I hear about Cardinal Gregory and the Archdiocese of Washington have to do with the ordinary business of diocesan governance. That's what I'm trying to say. That's what I'm trying to yeah. say. Hirings and firings, in people the chancery, who are discontented about that kinds of things, and, you know. right? But but those are not. He has, I think, Gregory has shifted the conversation from the mechanic stuff that was the point of conflict in which he entered to a broader set of relatively ordinary in 2022 sets of, you know, issues in the life of the American church, frustrations or contentments about various kinds of things, financial administration, the leasing of parish property to Catholic charities, the traditions custodes stuff, the synod on synodality, this kind of stuff where whatever people feel about it, that's the kind of stuff they have strong opinions about when you ask them about Gregory. Yeah. The reason for that, I do think, is because one of his decision, I think, to take that kind of a profile of real diocesan governance, which... I think most people would say is a good idea for a bishop, but two, because of a very strict, disciplined policy of non-engagement with regard to McCarrick. And what I'm wondering about is how that how that aligns with I will always tell you the truth, and whether or not Gregory's approach to that, a sort of strict policy of non-engagement with regard to McCarrick, is actually representative of most of the approach of the Church in the United States, the the leadership of the Church in the United States to the ongoing and lingering questions related to McCarrick, and then, as a consequence of that, various other questions connected to Vosas Tislex Mundi and the kind of expected ecclesiastical reform process that people thought in 2018 and 2019 we would still be in the middle of. Like, has this thing been sort of memed into non-existence? Or is the effort, is there a broad effort to kind of meme it into non-existence? I, I don't know that there's a particular effort directed to the McCarrick scandal. I, you I don't I think th- Gregory has said, with intentionality to his curial staff, I am not answering questions about Theodore McCarrick. My ministry in the Archdiocese of Washington is not going to be hijacked by Theodore McCarrick. Well, yes to the latter. I don't know about the former. I, I think he's said to his communication staff, I'm not going to engage full stop. J.D., I have, since the Cardinal arrived in Washington, I have repeatedly posed only one question. Every single encounter I have had 
with uh, all members of the Washington Archdiocese press team, which is simply, Cardinal Gregory is a man of Chicago, and I really just want to ask him one question. Cubs or Sox? <laughs> it's been three years, and I can't even find out which baseball team this guy it's roots for. It's not true. That's the only question you're asking, but it's the consistent no, it's question. A, it is the most it. consistently asked. It's mm, always my first right. question. He has this policy. This policy of complete non-engagement. You're saying has shifted the conversation, and I agree with you. Well, it's not just it shifted the conversation. He's just he's he's doing other things. Rather so than is talking it the same the as I will tell always tell you the truth? Has no, he done the thing he said he would do? That's what I'm getting at. Has he done the thing I that he said he would do? I no, I don't think he has in terms of the tone and what the clear implication of what was being said in the context of that press conference. Uh, Cardinal Gregory has not ushered in an era of transparency in the Archdiocese of Washington, particularly in relation to his predecessors. Right. That that you you can't claim that. And is that. Uh, and is Gregory unique in that fact, or does Gregory represent, I think, w- what I think, my f- observation is that Gregory is not unique in that sense. Gregory represents the sort of general disposition, with with some very interesting and clear exceptions, the sort of general disposition towards changing the subject, looking into the middle distance, or acting offended when sort of question lingering questions about McCarrick at all are raised. And what I would say is that has actually been a very effective approach. I mean, you, oh, you make yeah. the point. They, they have actually very effectively done the job of changing the conversation, but it should be noted that the change in conversation ha- comes uh, effectively at the cost of the kind of ecclesiastical reform that thought, that, that that was thought to have hap- you know be called for in two thousand eighteen. Sure, but I mean, this is this is endemic in the church, and it, it starts from the Vatican. The Vatican's you know the, the McCarrick report was. We don't need to go down the road of explaining exactly what it was and why. It was not entirely satisfactory, to say the least. Um, but uh, post the McCarrick report, the entire tone coming out of the Vatican has been, we're not going to talk about awkward stuff like that, and and why would we want to, and say as little as possible. And I mean, the, look, the, the Father Rupnik scandal, which we have written about a fair bit this week, and as you, I, I thought, deftly, uh, said uh, crafts uh, is a is a tile in an emerging mosaic of how um, issues like this are handled in the church, and it doesn't look great. Um, you know, Father Father Arturo Souza, who's the Superior General of the Society of Jesus and Father Rupnik's superior and everything, said uh, in an interview this week when asked about you know this priest who was traveling the world, meeting with the Pope, receiving awards internationally, teaching or not teaching, lecturing at seminaries, and had been subject to serial accusations apparently credible enough that they placed him on restricted ministry and the CDF was investigating and only didn't try him because the statute of limitations had run out. And we can talk about that in a minute if you want. But the point is these seem to be fairly well-founded accusations that he had abused the sacrament of confession to sexually, spiritually and psychologically abuse religious sisters to whom he was serving as chaplain. Um, Father Sosa's comment was, well, we didn't hide anything. We didn't make any public statements, but you know we didn't we didn't hide anything. You know we never lied about it. Nobody ever asked us if he was on restricted ministry for you know sexually abusing people in the confessional. Right, and sure we restricted. And, and yeah, if you we don't restricted ask, him for we ministry. Don't tell. We restricted him for ministry. What? Why are you saying that you think that we did something problematic when he continued to travel the world, release a weekly YouTube video, meet with the Pope? receive right, awards etc his answer was you don't ask we don't tell and then and then and i hope this i really hope it was a bad translation but then in that same interview father sosa said and this is i think 
I hope that this is an isolated perspective. You know, really what we have to begin talking about is how there can be greater reconciliation between, you know, those, you know, accuse, effectively accusers and those who are accused and how they can forgive one another. And um, I really hope that that's a bad translation because it is true that everyone is called to forgiveness, but I do not think it is true that the call of the church in the midst of sort of clear problems with regard to governance, both judicial and executive Sacramental blasphemy. Yeah, in this in this case is the right time to sort of raise that uh, we all need to forgive and move forward kind of language without without the kind of transparency which and repentance which precedes forgiveness. Or even a credible canonical process. So the reason I raise this about Cardinal Gregory, Ed, is because I just um, – I, I, I've just been thinking about the shift that we have had over the past three years since Gregory came and there was sort of universal desire to have clarity about this to what I think is a successful sort of changing the, the subject by a policy of non-engagement and then um, a kind of – and this is not Gregory, but this is the other shift that I think we have seen, which we've talked about recently – a kind of politicization of clerical abuse or misconduct as an issue where – um, too often in the Catholic conversation today, much of the discussion about sort of abuse and neglect issues pertains to what someone sort of on the other side of um, the aisle or in a different camp that, uh, than mine did or didn't do in the way in which I might sort of um, you know, weaponize that to achieve a kind of theological end. And I see that uh, all the time. And both of those are dramatic shifts in the conversation from where we were. I was just thinking as I thought about Gregory Turning 75, the kind of um, urgency with which people felt a need to have answers for the sake of reform and the way in which that reform project has been largely shelved through non-engagement and then, to I think, to a broad extent, politicized by a certain set of kind of, uh, co- you know, commentary figures in the life of the church. Um, okay, as, but as it's, if you see it being politicized as a sort of um, tactic in ecclesiastical politics, that is only because and is in its own way proof of the fact that it has become an accepted part of the background noise of the church that we don't talk about this sort of stuff it's all there everyone's got these skeletons we have a generation of guys who worked for the generation of guys that were responsible for all of this bad stuff and everybody in some way has a has a nasty connection that you know it may or may not be fair to to raise and so we're all just going to agree not to do it. And the only time you see it being raised is to sort of say, well, I'll, I'll violate the truce on this one because I don't like this guy. That's right. So Gregory is now 75. He probably will stay on for another two years or more. But I don't think that he is going to, in his last two years or on his way out the door or something like that, release the McCarrick financial records. Very honestly, I think that the release of the McCarrick financial report records is three years on from more than three years on from Gregory's appointment, but three years, you know, at Gregory's 75th birthday, I think I feel confident now saying the notion of the release of the McCarrick records is dead. Um, that if they come... Oh, I haven't given up hope. They're in a box somewhere. They're in a box somewhere, right? And and there are actually... Well, actually, they're in a box in more than one place. Yeah, there are listeners of this podcast who probably could make them available to us if they wanted to, if they thought that was important for the reform of the life of the church or to raise those issues with immediacy, which would be a great service, I think, to the kingdom. But a sort of official decision to release those records and to sort of resolve the questions of transparency on McCarrick is dead, not only in Washington, but I think in New Jersey as well, where more than two years ago, Cardinal... Tobin told us that he um, he couldn't release any records on McCarrick because of an ongoing attorney general's investigation, which at this point has turned into an attorney general's task force on clerical abuse across 
not only Catholicism, but several Protestant denominations and other religions as well. And I, I think has morphed into basically an ongoing ad hoc committee, which means that um, the notion of the AG's report investigation coming to a conclusion is probably an, an unreasonable one, which means that Cardinal Tobin is in the position of not having to release his own diocesan findings on McCarrick, which he told us he wasn't able to release while the AG was investigating things. So I honestly think that um, in New Jersey, in Washington, and anywhere else where it might be plausible— the official release of McCarrick's stuff is done, and Gregory et al. have done a good enough job of sort of changing the conversation in the way that you say, such that no one's going to ask, other than us. And, and perhaps journalists are going to ask, but I think they're going to do a good job when journalists ask of continuing to sort of say, well, why are you dredging up these painful things from the past instead of letting the church move forward? Well, because the guy's on criminal right, trial right, in Massachusetts. Exactly. And That's exactly not right. of the past at all. Yeah, but, exactly. Yeah. And these people who, who who are probably in that record book are probably still in, in significant leadership positions in the life of the church, et cetera. But I do think that's where things stand. Yes, I would agree with that. Yeah. I want to talk probably. more about superannuation of bishops and also Vatican finances uh, when we come back after a word from our sponsor. Ed, this week's episode of The Pillar Podcast is, as you know, brought to us by uh, something really cool, the Christendom App Project, which they're back with us as a a sponsor of the show, which we're really grateful for. The Christendom App Project is an initiative of Christendom College's Graduate School of Theology. And what it is, is it's a project that aims to allow students um, at other universities, students at, you know, state universities or secular universities of various kinds, to take classes in all kinds of Catholic studies subjects or from Catholic perspectives in subjects like Christian literature, the Bible, divine worship, Catholicism and modernity, philosophical foundations of of Catholic thought, the human person, to take classes like that online and then to transfer them into their program at the university they attend to, you know, earn credit towards the completion of their degree, possibly fill their core curriculum requirements. It's like an effort to ensure that students who are going to large state university or some other public institution can receive the benefit of the kind of Catholic formation on, 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 on in philosophy and the humanities and theology that students at a Catholic college would get. I, I think it's a really it's a really cool project, it seems to me. I'll be honest with you, until they became sponsors of the show, I, I had not heard of this program. And, and even when they first became sponsors of the show, I was kind of like, can you do that? And and I mean, I've, I've read about it now. I mean, I've looked it up and read it. And you can. And I think it's so cool. I, I, I don't understand. The idea that you can basically say, if if there's and it's not just a question of you know going to a secular university or studying you know for secular degrees, but I remember when I was an undergraduate and I was doing my degree in theology. Mm-hmm. Actually, it was theology and religious studies because it was that kind of school, mm-hmm. um, and I was taking all those courses. You know, some of it was good, some of it was you know complete bunk, um, and, and I I kept. I said on more than one occasion, I, I would like to be able to take some authentically Catholic modules. Yeah. I would like to be able to do something on, for example, divine worship in the Catholic Church, um, you know, or the philosophical foundations of Catholic thought. And and the idea that you can now basically do that from whatever school you are studying in, whatever degree you are doing, I just think is insanely cool. And what I like about it even more was, and they said, you know, okay, so if you're you know, you can do it sort of individually online. It's distance learning, all that kind of stuff. But if there's a couple of you doing the same stuff in the same university or from the same university, I should say, the university ad quem, J.D., mm-hmm. um, 
then they'll like put you together and make put you, you together in a group. kind of a cohort, a kind of a seminar. Yeah, and you'll, then you can have conversations with people. Group. Like you're taking, you know, as if you were on campus and you're having conversation after class with your peers and kind of what, what happens in the classroom then can become the, the sort of um, basis for conversation and, and, uh, and friendship and those kinds of things. I think that's a really cool I idea. I love it. It's novel. It's, it, it, it definitely meets a need. I mean, it's, look, I, I guess what I'm saying is the best endorsement of this thing I can give is I wish I'd had this as an undergraduate yeah. and I studied theology. Look, um, there are lots of reasons why students might not go to um, a Catholic college, a kind of Christendom college, why they might go to a different kind of university, whether that's because of the thing that they want to study or whether that's because of um, you know tuition or whether it's because they want to be closer to home or whatever it is or they have other obligations. There are lots of reasons why students might not go to a kind of um, – a, a, a live on campus kind of Catholic college experience. What's cool about this program is that the coursework, the intellectual formation that forms the basis for an entire worldview that one gets at that kind of college um, is offering to come to you to say, wherever you are, we'll come to you. And we've developed this way by which you can take classes to have to be formed in a Catholic worldview, a holistically Catholic worldview. And not only that, but we'll provide a mechanism whereby you can transfer this, acquire, earn credit, transfer this into your school so that you earn, you know, so that you're closer to your degree. And potentially these would count, I, I presume, for kind of your core courses as well. So I, I agree with you. I think this is quite cool. The Christendom at project, I suppose it's Christendom at wherever you are, really. The Christendom at project really is, I think. At sign. Yeah, at sign project. Yeah, Like the, like the cool kids do. Indeed. So there you have it. Um, uh, the Christendom app project, I suppose, coming to wherever you are at, as it were. Um, you can see the link in our show notes. Spring registration is now open. I would really highly encourage you to check this out and think about taking some classes because they are quite, quite cool. And we're grateful that they're a sponsor of the show. And now back to our program. All right, we're back, everybody. And what we're going to talk about, Ed reminded me on the break that the thing that we were hoping to talk about... Um, in the back half of this show is uh, the second half of this show, round two, uh, the back nine, whatever you want to call it. What we were hoping to talk about now, um, having discussed um, Cardinal Gregory, having had a word from our sponsor and being back now, what we're going to talk now is about the state of the Roman pontiff sort of kitchen cabinet, his uh, his council of cardinal advisors, what once was called the C9, um, but uh, now I think would be appropriately called the C7 because I think there are seven members. But uh, 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 an informal body of cardinals, cardinal advisors, which I think is officially called, um, so I guess it's not informal, but a body of cardinal advisors, which I think is officially called the Council of Cardinal Advisors, um, which meets periodically in Rome, uh, was initially institute, launched to advise the Holy Father on the reform of the Roman Curia, which now the Pope has sort of uh, enacted a reform of the Roman Curia with the promulgation of um, Predicate Evangelium, a sort of new org chart, if you will, for the whole, for the Roman Curia. Um, uh, and so now, with that out of the way, the C9 is still meeting, but their mandate is a little bit less clear and their future is a little bit less clear. And maybe that says something even about the future of the pontificate. Edward? I, I think that's true. I, I, I'm fascinated by the fact that the C9, C6, C7, it's been called all of those things, um, still exists. Because, I mean, it was when Francis created in 2013, the, the, the stated purpose of the thing was to assist him in the universe, in the governance of the universal church, to bring a, a concentrated high level global perspective to issues of moment crossing the Holy father's desk. And it had the item number one new constitution for the Roman Curia. Now they've done that. It's done. And I kind of expected 
Because the thing has been drifting for a bit. Like the numbers go up and down. People keep aging off. The membership of it has been. The membership of it has been. The membership of it has been, you know, aging. uh, They've been aging. A lot of the members have aged off or dropped off for other reasons and not really been replaced, which is why it went down to from nine to six to now seven. And I I honestly expected when Predicati Evangelium was promulgated, I thought we'd just get like a a liner note in the bulletino saying, and so having achieved its purpose, the Council of Cardinal Advisors is dissolved. Um, But there's still meeting and it's, I I don't know. It's like, I, did you read the, did you read the bulletin from the Holy See on the meeting this week? I did. I I read the bulletin from the, from the uh, Holy See this week about the meeting of the Council of Cardinal Advisors. And basically, I mean, it's basically a zombie committee. Well, I would not say it's a zombie committee. Okay. They talked about some stuff, but none of it was important. Okay. But I don't know what they talked about. They got an update on the cop. They got two updates, in fact, on the cop 27. did you ask me? What's the COP27? The the, the COP27 uh, is this, you know, climate UN change climate change conference. Okay, so they talked about it a Asian. climate change conference. They talked about kind of the state of affairs of the Asian Bishops Conference, which we actually don't know, or the Asian... No, not the, the state the, of affairs a, of the Asian Bishops Conferences. They talked about a, a, meeting, a meeting of the, of the Asian, Asian Bishops, Bishops, Bishops conferences, conferences, the heads of the various conferences of Asian Bishops, which we don't know. Maybe there was something serious They read going a on, report from Cardinal Grech did, on the Synod of Synodality. It, did, it was the kind of agenda that um, gives you the sense that the meeting was called in about a week before the meeting. Someone was like, "Ah, oh, crap, we got to have an agenda for this meeting. Maybe we can grab this from this and somebody can give a talk about this. You've been to that kind of meeting where it's like, we have these meetings and therefore we need to have an agenda about the meetings now for the, for the right. meeting now. Cause but you would up. think that if this is the Pope's senior global sounding board mm-hmm. on the governance of the universal church, they might mention something like, I don't know, the war in Ukraine, or if you're going to talk about Asian bishops conferences, the Chinese government, wiping its nose with the Vatican China deal in public uh, in appointing, not just appointing bishops without Vatican approval, but now creating whole dioceses out of thin air. The, the, uh, agenda, Rome. the agenda that was published for the meeting is the kind of agenda that sort of suggests that nothing, there was nothing important to discuss. We have to allow for two possibilities. One, that lots of important stuff was discussed and they just decided not to put it in the bulletino. Um, well, then don't have a bulletino about it. Say it's <laughs> maybe, a secret meeting. Maybe that lots of important stuff. And it is the prerogative of the Holy See. I think it is the prerogative of the Holy Father to have a meeting with a set of cardinals without without uh, promulgating an agenda. And he generally does. He meets with card- decast- prefects of the Roman Curia all the time and he doesn't sort of give a little uh, a little summary of what they met about. So it's the prerogative of the Holy Father to do that. But it is possible. We have to allow for the possibility that, in fact, there was important conversation going on, but uh, they didn't put it in the thing. But what suggests, in fact, that the that this council is limping a little bit, I don't feel good calling it a, a zombie council because I don't feel right about that. But what suggests to me that the council is limping a little bit is that um, most of the members are themselves superannuated a la Cardinal Gregory, which is to say most of them are at the very tail end of their ecclesiastical service in oh, one way or another. You wish or they were superannuated right? in the way of Cardinal well, Gregory. Most of these, I mean, one of them is over 80. Yeah, one of them another is one is going to turn 80 in the next week. One of them is 77. One of them is going to turn 80 in the next week. They're either at the tail end of their diocesan ministry or they're no longer a diocesan bishop or a curial prefect. So, yeah, so... Um, the, this this advisory group which the Pope has had is not sort of drawing from the cardinals sort of at the peak of their ecclesiastical career, which could indeed suggest that the thing is sort of not that important to the Pope anymore. Now, why might it not be important to the Pope anymore? It might be not important to the Pope anymore because he really he doesn't feel like he needs it. He has different advisors. The Pope Pope Francis notoriously kind of cycles through sets of advisors, um, and you know people are sort of in or out. But it's kind of well known in the Curia that the Pope 
there's the Pope will listen to someone for a while and then there will be a kind of you know um, disagreement about something and then the person will sort of fall out of favor with the Pope well, and for a this, while. No, but the, the, those are the big names on this on this committee. Is is this is the this is give or take um, some people who've dropped off, most notably Cardinal Pell, who took a leave of absence in 2017 and then aged out prison, of it in yeah. 2019. Um, aged out of what? Aged out of all of his curial positions, including the, the C9. But there are they, people they on the C9 a, who are older than Cardinal Pell. Yes. Okay. Nevertheless, that was the reason given at the time. Got it. Was that Cardinal Pell's five-year term as prefect of the Secretariat for the Economy lapsed in 2019, albeit with the last two years of it having been on a leave of absence, and the Vatican put out a statement saying he has, he has lapsed, his term of office as prefect for the Secretary for the Economy has lapsed, and he has also, therefore, lapsed off of... Well, that uh, was very polite. Card. It was very polite of them. Um, but anyway, with the exception of Cardinal Pell, who dropped off in um, 2019, most of the sort of big names on this council are like the greatest hits of Francis's advisors and team of super friends in 2013, and most of them of either demonstrably no longer wield the same influence with the Pope that they did in 2013. Um, in some cases, because they themselves are the subject of considerable and ongoing scandal. Uh, for example, Cardinal Maradiaga, or they've had a, a moment of public awkwardness with Pope Francis, like Cardinal O'Malley of Boston. Like mm-hmm. I, th- this is my point. When you, when you say it's not fair to call it a zombie committee, it's like, well, they're not talking about it. I didn't say it's substance. not fair to call it a zombie committee. I said, I don't feel comfortable referring to a, a, a a body of of cardinals in that way, I see. Yeah, I didn't say it wasn't fair. I just said let's have a bit of decorum here. I see. Cardinal Marx has offered his resignation to the Pope twice over sexual abuse crisis in Germany. He's still on there. You know, I I again, I'm not disagreeing with you substantively. I'm just not keen on calling cardinals on like the old. Uh, you know, Cardinal Cardinal Gracias is on there. Who's the Archbishop of Bombay? I you know he's. You know he's a cool dude, mm-hmm. I guess, and he's got an important <laughs> job. But he's he does have an he's also job. he's also past retirement age considerably. And yes. again, like you know, of all of the things this council could have talked about this week, that would have I would have thought you know been an issue of importance, like the ongoing civil war in the Syro Malabar Church that has led to the so back you know, to where one, we were because I think we're back. We've gotten in a little bit of a loop here, but back to where we were. So given that, given that the the thing is not seeming to be given the attention from the Pope that it once was given or being consulted with the Pope on the on the things one, on which it was consulted, it's possible that the Pope has just moved on and has a different set of advisors. It's possible that, honestly, that the Pope hasn't renewed or refreshed the thing because he perceives that his, you know, he has kind of completed his own magnum opus in the reform of the Roman Curia and um, and done some other things which he wanted to do and is now... Is no, it does not have other than the completion of the synod on synodality sort of big projects on his horizon, right? It's possible that the Pope sort of just feels like he wants to um, get to the get to the end zone on the synod on synodality, and um, and and not sort of put uh, put other things in motion. My controversial view, do tell. If we're, if we're gonna if we're gonna be totally honest, I don't actually think Pope Francis is all that invested in getting to the end of the synod and synodality. He's invested in making yeah, sure there is before. an end. You've said that before. You, you, you've said yeah. before that in your view, you think the Pope actually would like to see the synod and synodality conclude without him. And that's part of the reason why he extended it is because he'd like to see the synod and synodality conclude without him. In either case, the point for this issue is that I don't think the Pope – if you think about where the Pope's agenda is, many of the things which uh, – many of the things which he – 
had had on his agenda, like the reform of the Roman Curia, like um, a sort of decentralization of liturgical approvals and translations, which the Pope has accomplished, other things like that, have largely been accomplished. And it seems for the most part that the only big project on the Pope's dossier at the moment is the Synod on Synodality. Yeah. But I mean, again, if if the C9, C6, C7, whatever, um, was really supposed to be a live conversation of the Pope's closest advisors, you'd expect Cardinal Grech to be on it. Instead of send, instead of Grech effectively sending them a memo for them to read out loud, well, you'd I, expect him to be on it. I think the like, really he's the guy running the thing. I think the really interesting um, point that you raised in an analysis about this this week is the idea of lay people being involved in you know the, the part a, a sort of a, a part of the pope's reform of the roman curia that got a lot of attention a lot of attention was his um permission or the possibility for lay people to exercise um the governing authority over certain dicasteries of the roman curia you know that, that lay people could lead certain dicasteries of the roman curia which actually already existed prior to that because paulo ruffini was the prefect of the secretary for communications but um but apart from that, the Pope sort of affirming that lay people could exercise governance in some dicasteries was the thing that got a lot of attention. But the Pope has not built, to my knowledge, the Pope has not built at any time in his tenure a kind of close advisory body that is constituted about ecclesiastical life or governance that is constituted largely by lay people. Perhaps one exception to that would be the Pontifical Commission on the Protection of Minors, which has had many lay people on it. But the Pope's relationship with the Pontifical Council on the Protection of Minors has been tempestuous. And, well, and um, all the lay members keep quitting. The lay members keep quitting because they're not getting. They don't feel like they're being heard or like there's actual consultation. So, but I, but I think it would be would have been or could well be. And you raised this uh, in, in interesting. Well, if, if for nothing else, continuing to have this idea of the, the Council of Cardinal Advisors, you know, means that, for example, I mentioned Cardinal Pell dropped off in in practice in 2017, in theory, in 2019. Um, None of his successors have been eligible to sit on it because like, they're not cardinals, right? So if the thing changed to become was, an advisory first council, by, a sort of yeah, un, a sort of a pastoral council on the on the governance of the life of the church, a sort of universal pastoral council on the governance of the life of the church, which would actually be quite cool. Um, you know, that would give the pope the opportunity to appoint labelable to it and, and things like that. Of course, that would be subject to an extraordinary amount of criticism from people who didn't like the appointments that the pope made. But um, the the interesting thing that the pope has done is is on the one hand emphasized a new possible role for laity in sort of a much more concrete sharing in the power of governance or exercise of the power of governance, perhaps. Um, And on the other hand, the thing which um, is ordinarily called for, which is sort of greater consultative voice for laity, this might have been a place where the Pope would have done more of that and it has not to date happened, although it could, and that would be interesting. I mean, it's not completely off his radar because, as I said, the, the natural time to wrap this thing up would have been the promulgation of Predicati of Evangelium earlier this year, but he didn't. He chose not to do that, and it's not like he hasn't appointed anyone to it. You know, he put Cardinal Basungo, who's the who's the young, practically, you know, by, by comparison to the other uh, six members of the council, the baby on the council. He's like, I think he's only sixty-two. Who's the Archbishop Cardinal Archbishop of Kinshasa? You know, he he's been appointed, and he's I think by far the most fascinating and interesting member of the thing. Although, you know, I. I Again, you'd think if you had had him there, a guy from Congo who can speak about the problem of a society, you know, racked with conflict and all sorts of problems of 
um, you know, tribal and religious strife and things like that, and keeping a civil government. Right? What role can the church play as a as a peacemaker? And also, like again, you got you got him in the room. Talk about Ukraine, but they don't do that. I, like I, I don't get it. It like it's not. Um, it hasn't. This is why I called it a zombie committee. It's not that it stopped moving. It hasn't stopped moving. It's not dead. It's very clearly still still going. But mm-hmm. you know, it, it it mystifies me. Is like you know, the Pope seems to have done just enough to let it keep going, but not enough to keep it relevant or useful. And that surprises me because you know, th- this would this would seem to me be to be the sort of thing that. Pope Francis would delight in using as a vehicle to try out new things or give prominence to new voices, and he's not doing it. And I just, I, I find that interesting. I don't know what that says about the Pope, but I think it says something. Yeah, fair enough. All right, Edward. Um, uh, I would. Uh, would you like to play a game? You sure had a good, good conversation here. But would would you like to play a game? I'd love to play a game, JT. Sure. Okay, uh, Ed. Um, you are a man of strong opinions about <laughs> cultural. Your expectations for other people. I mean, you have strong opinions about when people, when and how people ought to do the things that they do. Is that fair to say? I think that's probably fair. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> and so I suspect you may be among the cadre of people in this world who have very strong opinions about um, about other people's observation of Advent, Christmas, um, and um, the observations thereof and the sort of time in which people ought to... Uh, engage in the various customs of Christmas. In other words, I think you probably have strong opinions about when it's appropriate to do what Christmas things and how. Is that true? I I don't know because I haven't thought about it, but I, I suspect I probably do. But if that's where this is going, let, let's find out together, J.D. This will be a journey of mutual discovery. Okay, this is a little game, Ed, that I have invented called Ho, 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 When's Too Soon. Um <laughs> Oh, I could just see that on a t-shirt. And the reason it's called Ho, 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 When's Too Soon is because I would like to uh, list for you, um, uh, to give you a list of things people do um, to celebrate the the Adventide and Christmastide season um, and ask you when in the Advent and Christmas, well, let's just say when from Thanksgiving onward, it's acceptable to do them. So when it's too soon for people to do these things and when it's acceptable for, for them to do them. Because I suspect you're the kind of person who, for example, says, oh, you shouldn't watch Die Hard until Christmas Eve afternoon. It's, it's, it's wrong to watch Die Hard before Christmas Eve afternoon. You, you're, you're, you're spoiling Advent if you watch Die Hard too soon and you need the anticipation of watching Die Hard, whatever. I suspect well, you're that I, kind I of mean, hang on. Since you've raised the point, no, Die Hard is definitely a Christmas film that that's self-evident, but I would say, no, it's, it's appropriate to watch Die Hard in anticipation. It's an Advent film, probably okay, speaking, see, because the look, setting is an office Christmas party, which takes place before Christmas. You see my point? Yeah, I take your point. Okay, great. So I'm going to list some things for you, Edward, and you're going to tell me when is too soon and when it's appropriate. Ho, 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 when's too soon? Okay. Okay. Ed, putting up the tree. When's too soon? Um... <sighs> I mean, anything before the first Sunday of Advent is obviously right out. If you put a tree up in November, there's something wrong with you. Um, that that that's all. I mean, that's just a matter of fire safety. Uh, you know, Fair, you, yeah. You know, you don't do that. Um, on the other hand, I mean, I know there are sort of the liturgical calendar Taliban would tell you that you know you shouldn't do it before Gaudete Sunday, and and I I understand that Gaudete Sunday is the is the seasonal inflection point at which we stop immunitizing the eschaton so to speak and turn towards anticipation of the celebration of christmas and i and i get that and that's good and noble but here's the thing 
Depending on where you live, it can be really bloody difficult to find a good Christmas tree that late into December. Mm. The good ones have all gone, and you can be left with a piece of kindling. Mm. So I, I, I think any time in Advent is acceptable, subject to circumstances and external factors. I, I'm not one to make a... My tree went up second Sunday of Advent. I'm going to tell you where I've had a lot of luck getting good trees that seem to be fresh cuts even late into the Christmas season. And it surprised me, but it's been I've had consistent good luck there. Home Depot. I That's where I get mine every year. Yeah, where um, low prices are just the beginning or something. Maybe that's Walmart. You're going to like the way you look. No, you know, mine was not um, a low price tree. No, well, I'm but, just I mean, it was a, what the Home Depot slogan is. Um, you've got questions we've got. What does Home Depot say about itself? The company must have a slogan. Don't ask us. We just work here. <laughs> that may well be. The bathrooms are... A long slog way in the back right-hand corner. How doers get more done is the Home Depot slogan. How doers get more done. Oh, the the slogan before that was more saving, more doing. That's the power of the depot. You probably remember that one. But they no, have changed it to, oh, okay. And before that, Ed, the slogan of Home Depot was you can do it, we can help, which was a long-time slogan. Well, I did, in growing up in London, um, Home Depot, it's it's analog. I don't know if they're directly related companies, but they have exactly the same branding, only it's been called Home Depot. It's called B&Q. Mm-hmm. And I don't know what the B or the Q stands for, but their their slogan is, you can do it if you B&Q it. And perhaps this this just goes further to the... They're, they're presumably twin companies in some way. In the same mm-hmm. way Walmart's called Asda over there or whatever. Up where um, the smoke is all billiard and curled, tween pavement and stars is the B-Q-er's world. When hardly the day, when the days. What's the next question, JD? Do you know that song? When there's hardly no day, no hardly no night. There's things all in shadow and halfway in light. On the rooftops in London. It is never acceptable to do Dick Van Dyke for Mary Poppins. Okay, you hate Dick uh, Van Dyke. I don't hate Dick Van Dyke. I hate Dick Van Dyke's appearance in Mary Poppins. Christmas carols. Ed, when is it too soon to begin singing Christmas carols? I'm not talking about Adventide songs. Um, I'm talking about Christmas carols. Okay, so you're not talking about O Come, O Come, Emmanuel, for example. No, which people start singing on the first Sunday of Advent, even though in my to my way of thinking, I would prefer that people sing O Come, O Come, Emmanuel when we begin the O Antiphons, but people sing it immediately when Advent begins, and that's totally fine. Uh, Christmas carols, Ed. I... I... Okay, here you go. I mean, Silence unless you are and, and okay, all. so there's. A, I think there's a general, there's a general amnesty for Christmas events held in December. If you, because uh, for example, things tend to close down, especially Catholic institutions. You know, if, if a university or a school or a charity or whatever is having a a Christmas party or a Christmas mass or something before the Christmas closure, I think you sh- there's a general amnesty in my mind to singing Christmas. Carols yeah, or hymns, uh, any Christmas song. In, in, in Good those luck events, will rub off when I shake hands with you. Um, but in general, I think yeah. Oh, Advent carols after the O antiphons kick in. Christmas carols proper, Christmas Eve onward. Okay, I'm but a you big believer in the twelve days of Christmas. Do you listen to a Christmas radio station in your car in December? I don't listen to the radio. Okay, neither do I actually. I for two reasons. One, I don't listen to the radio that much in my car too. Um, my, the battery of my car died a few months ago. And, um, in order to reset the radio, I have to have some five digit code and, um, well, I'll be damned if I know where that is. 
So <laughs> that's that. Fair enough. Okay. Um, all right. Ed. Uh, wishing people a Merry Christmas. Merry Christmas, Governor. When is it appropriate to begin wishing people a Merry Christmas? On Christmas Eve. Oh, all right. Christmas Eve. Fair enough. Ed, slacking off at work for the holiday season. There is a noted decline in productivity among most American workers in the Christmas, in the Adventide and Christmas season. When do you think it's appropriate to begin a, a more relaxed schedule? Never. <laughs> you liar. You Never. started about a week before Thanksgiving no getting slacking. into Christmas. You no got into Christmas s- mode about a week before Thanksgiving, and everybody who works to the pillar knows it. Lies. <laughs> L- I'm, I'm averaging like 3,500 words a day. No, I'm Give sure a- that's true. I'm sure that's true. Okay, Ed. Um, slacking. When, when is when when is it appropriate to attend Christmas Mass? Like, when is the earliest that one can attend Christmas Mass? Bearing in mind, of course, the question about the I'm earliest that, a, that an anticipated Mass can be offered, the canonical perspective of some, including Canada's Dead Peters, that an anticipatory Mass could be offered any time after noon on, on the day before. Yeah, I don't Sunday agree with precept. Dr. I don't Peters tend to agree with that. Dr. Peters about that as well. I tend yeah. to think that... Anytime uh, after First Vespers. That's what I tend to think as well, that you are really... Uh, and have an anticipatory mass before first vespers, but I'm not sure if that's in the law or if it's just my preference. But when is it too soon to attend an anticipated Christmas mass? Uh, I would say I will. I will allow argument. I will hear argument for f- 4 p.m. on Christmas Eve is the cutoff point. Myself, I feel 6 p.m. Okay. is the earliest possible. So we started talking by putting, talking about putting up the tree and there's some people who make a distinction. They have a sort of progression over time. They, they, they put up the tree and then they by intention let it sit for a while naked and then they light, put lights on it and then they decorate it. When Are you that sort of person who thinks the tree needs to sit naked as a kind of symbol of our Adventide logging before you put de- decorations and lights on it or can you put stuff on it just as soon as you have it? Oh, I let it sit naked and unadorned for overnight because to let the branches for the branches, yeah, open up. Um, No, I no. You don't have. I mean, if you're going to have a tree, have a tree. Okay, great. When is it too soon, Ed, to cook a roast beast? When is it too soon to start Christmas tide feastings? Well, I mean, um, when is it too soon? I I I don't know. When is it? When is it soon enough? I would say Gaudete Sunday. When the church says Gaudete. I say how high. Okay. You know, if if you're being told to rejoice, you're gonna need to you need to make some meat. Okay, great. When is it too soon to give gifts to friends? Like when when I am sure you've been sitting on my Christmas gift, when will you feel comfortable giving it to me? How soon into how long into Advent do we need to be? Midnight Christmas Eve. Then you give me a Christmas gift on midnight Christmas Eve. I, I that would be the earliest I would call I mean, look, there are twelve days of me? Christmas. Do you really want me to tell you? <laughs> kind of, because I didn't know we were doing that. And if you actually got no, I haven't got you anything. Don't be ridiculous. Okay. We had we had this conversation back in July that where we, we had gotten into a sort of we had a conversation we, we, about giving each other Christmas presents in July. No, we had a conversation because we had gotten into the habit. We had somehow fallen into a rhythm of sending each other increasingly escalating That's personal right. gifts. That's right. We're like, we have to stop you, this arms race right a now. Really, uh, a really nice. You got me a watch. I did get you a watch, uh, and you love it. You wear it all the time, or I don't know if you just wear it all the time. I do. No, I do wear it all the time. Okay, well. All right. When is it too soon, Ed, if someone gives you a gift? Let's say I gave you a gift. Let's say I ra- I saw you this weekend because I came to D.C. for something, which I'm not. But let's say I came to D.C. this weekend and I said, hey, I got you this gift. I, you didn't have to get me anything, but I just wanted to give you a little gift to celebrate the birth of the Lord. When would it be too soon in your mind to open that gift? When When is it appropriate? Midnight you, Christmas Eve. You've got to go to Mass. You've got to get back from Mass. Okay, great. Ed, when is it too soon to start decorating with tinsel? 
Uh, tinsel is an abomination. <laughs> okay. When is it too soon to conduct the annual airing of grievances? Uh, it's never too soon. <laughs> Thanksgiving. That, is, that begins Thanksgiving. <laughs> okay. And, and this one should be self-evident, but there are people I've recently learned who have a different approach to this than I do. When is it appropriate and when is it too soon to put our Lord and Savior, a representation of our Lord and Savior, the baby Jesus, in the nativity creche? Um, I like to do it on during, in the context of morning prayer on Christmas morning. But here's the thing. Our creche is large. Mm-hmm. And it includes various scenes. So we have the we have the stable with the Holy Family. We have the appearance of the angel to the shepherds. We have the visitation. We have the annunciation. We have the finding of the child Jesus in the temple amongst the doctors of the law. We have Joseph's dream. You know, we, we and then you have the have, scene of the chimney sweeps. We have the what we have the the magi um, approaching Herod. Um, you know, we have a so I don't put the infant child in the crib until morning prayer on Christmas morning. But that having been said, I have already a Christ child in the scene for the finding of the child Jesus in the temple amongst the doctors of the law. Have you ever wondered why the Magi aren't a um, uh, a, uh, a joyful mystery? No, not really. I'd like to have a joyful mystery for the Magi. I mean, I guess the, I guess the competition is fierce and you only get five. That's true. Listen, if you want to learn more about the Magi, though, or if you want to learn more about any joyful mystery or the joyful mystery of our Lord's incarnation, what you really should be doing, Ed, and I don't know if you're doing it or not, but what you really should be doing is listening to our Advent mini-season of Sunday School, uh, a, a, uh, an Advent podcast in which Dr. Scott Powell teaches me a great deal about the incarnation of our Lord through the lens of three sets of people, Elizabeth and Zechariah, Mary and Joseph, and the prophets of the temple, Anna and Simeon. Sunday School's Advent mini-season is really, honestly, I think, a phenomenal show produced by our own executive producer, Kate Oliveira, who does a great job with it, taught by our own uh, Sunday School teacher, Dr. Scott Powell, who does a great job with it. And I'm there, too, just sort of nodding along. And um, you really, and I don't know if you're listening to it or not, but it is great fodder for your Adventide and Christmas prayer. I promise you that. I'm really getting a lot out of it myself. It is. It's, it is It is. good catechetical content for the whole family. Sunday School is indeed good catechetical content for the whole family. We'll be back next week with an episode, and then the episode after that will be, I believe, our annual Pillar Podcast Christmas Spectacular, which Ed is in charge of producing and I suspect is working on getting ready even as we speak. This week's episode of the Pillar Podcast was brought to you by the Christendom at Project, an exciting initiative from Christendom College Graduate School of Theology to bring faithful, rigorous Catholic studies electives to undergraduates at secular universities. Find out in our show notes how you can earn academic credit toward your degree while learning how to defend and share your faith. Spring registration for the Christendom at Project is now open. And again, there's a link in the show notes to learning much more about this very cool Christendom at Project. The Pillar Podcast is a production of Pillar Media and Ed and JD Production. I'm your host and Pillar Editor-in-Chief, J.D. Flynn, joined by my podcasting partner, Pillar Co-Founder, Ed Tinsel is an abomination, Condon. Our executive producer is Kate Oliveira, and we will be back next week. Low Howell Rose Airplane. 